Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Georgia Ede received her BA in biology from Carleton College in Minnesota, then spent seven years as a research assistant in the fields of biochemistry, wound healing, and diabetes before going on to earn an MD from the University of Vermont College of Medicine. She then completed her residency in general adult psychiatry at Harvard's Cambridge Hospital in 2002 and was a staff psychopharmacologist at Harvard University Health Services from 2007 to 2013. In 2013, she left Harvard to become the psychiatrist for Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, where she provided nutrition consults as well as psychiatric services to Smith students. She was the first and only psychiatrist at Harvard University Health Services to offer nutrition consultation as an alternative to medication management to students, faculty, and staff. Her areas of expertise include ketogenic and pre-agricultural diets, food sensitivity syndromes, and college mental health. Georgia is at the forefront of food's powerful effects on brain chemistry, hormonal balance, and metabolism, and has an incredible personal health story, which we'll cover today. Georgia, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jason. It is so great to have you here. And let's start with your personal wellness journey. Sure. Uh, So I practiced conventional psychiatry, you know, uh, medications and psychotherapy for a number of years after I finished residency training. And and I did not uh, I did not incorporate nutrition principles into my practice at that time. I never even thought about how nutrition might affect the brain. It wasn't part of our teaching in medical school. It wasn't part of our teaching in residency. So, but then when my own health started to, um, I started to run into some problems, which were a little mysterious. Things that I think a lot of your listeners will identify with, especially middle-aged people. And so, you know, this was in my early 40s when this happened. Um, so, things like IBS and fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and migraines and. Uh, so these kinds of things were really starting to interfere with my life, and I had every test known to man by very kind, caring Harvard specialists. I was working at Harvard at the time, so I had access to really good care. None of the people that I you know, turned to for help asked me what I was eating. Um, all of them, virtually all of them, gave me the same sheet about what to eat, and I was already doing what they had you know, been recommending and exercising religiously and so forth. So I thought I was doing everything right, but my body was telling me otherwise. So this was well, over 10 years ago now. Uh, so I just got curious about my diet because part of the symptoms I was having were gastrointestinal. I thought, well, you know, maybe there's something I'm eating that's bothering my stomach. I could at least you know, see if I could do something about that. I certainly didn't want to take four or five medications for all the different symptoms I was having. So so uh, through trial and error, long story short, after about six months of experimenting with my diet and keeping a food and symptom journal, um, I arrived at a diet which was really upside down from how we're told to eat, but it reversed all of the symptoms, not just the IBS symptoms, but all of the symptoms I was having. And then some, I actually felt better than I ever had felt in my life as for as far back as I could remember. So I got very curious about this diet because it was a mostly animal food. I was mostly meat, seafood, poultry, high cholesterol, high fat, low in plants, lower, much lower in fiber uh, than I had eaten before. And I, I honestly thought the diet that had solved my problems was going to kill me uh, because of everything I'd been taught about fat and meat and cholesterol. 
So I started researching nutrition for the first time and really seriously uh, reading the primary sources of information, the journal articles all across, the, you know, toxicology, botany, nutrition, cardiology, everything I could get my hands on to try to understand what is true about nutrition and, and, and uh, will, you know, will this diet put me at risk? Because this diet as a psychiatrist fascinated me. It wasn't just my physical health that improved. I never had any serious mental health problems, but my mental health was noticeably better. You know, my mood was better, more even. I was a lot less anxious under stress. My sleep was better, my concentration, my energy. So I thought, as a psychiatrist, I need to get curious about that because there are so many people I'm not able to help with medication. And so many people who don't want to take medication. And is there another way? So for the past more than 10 years now, I've been studying and writing about nutrition and speaking about nutrition and, and continue to learn every day um, to expand my knowledge base and, and ask new questions and, and try to help people in new ways. So what does your practice look like today? I think most people, when they think of a psychiatrist, they go in, they talk, they get a prescription, maybe not, or maybe they talk some more and it's ongoing. And what does that look like for you, for someone who's in this field of nutritional psychiatry? Yeah, so it's gone through various different forms. So when I first uh, um, started incorporating nutrition into my practice, I was working at the Harvard Health Service with students, faculty, and staff at Harvard and, and offering them nutrition as an alternative or as an add-on treatment to their medication. Uh, so if they were interested, we could talk about that. And, uh, and then as my, as, I, as my knowledge base grew and my experience grew, um, and, and my practice changed. I moved from Harvard to Smith College in Western Massachusetts for a number of years. I, as I, the more I learned, the more I became uh, aware of the fact that what we need to do in psychiatry is not just talk about food. We need to do a metabolic evaluation on everybody that comes in. We need to offer that as a, as a screening. We need to understand not just nutrient deficiencies. You know, most psychiatrists, when they meet a, when they meet a person for the first time, their intake will be, they'll take an emotional history, psychological history, medication history, medical history. Um, uh, they might do a few labs. You know, they might test a, a TSH, which is a thyroid, a, a test for thyroid dysfunction. They might check a B12 level if if the person's eating a plant-based diet. Maybe. Um, they, but they're not going to check things like insulin level or they're not going to necessarily get a cholesterol panel unless they're about to prescribe a medication that might affect cholesterol levels. Psychiatrists need to start thinking like doctors and like whole person doctors because the brain is part of the body. And if your metabolism is abnormal, your brain metabolism will also be abnormal. So in the past year or so, I am taking some time away from college mental health, which was my specialty, and I'm focusing exclusively on nutritional psychiatry in an online and a virtual consultation practice while I'm doing some writing and traveling. And, uh, and with everybody that I talk with, I, I start with metabolism, uh, nutrient deficiencies, and dietary quality. And so I can work with people no matter what they're eating and no matter what their dietary preferences are to help them optimize the diet in a way that feels comfortable to them and that can reduce or even eliminate, in some cases, the need for psychiatric medications. So I want to go back to a second. I know you left Smith to focus on this. And you mentioned earlier how a lot of the problems you'd see in people older, 40s, 50s. But what I also hear is people in their 20s, younger and younger, suffering. So I'm curious from what, what, what trends were you starting to see in the college environment 
Yeah, it's a very disturbing trend, actually, and it's nationwide uh, that college students are coming, uh, arriving on campus as freshmen, uh, first-year students, more and more often uh, taking psychiatric medication already when they arrive at the age of 18, sometimes even more than one psychiatric medication, two or three psychiatric medications, uh, with long psychiatric histories, sometimes histories of hospitalizations, histories of suicidal ideation, self-injury, um, significant difficulty functioning independently, and requiring a lot more support on campus from staff and a lot more interventional medical and psychiatric support. So in your opinion, what's going on <laughs> culturally? Is it, <laughs> is it food? Is it the device, social media? Is it the way we're parenting? Just what, what, as someone who's a concerned parent of, of two young daughters, we have an almost three-year-old and a four-month-old, like what, what, what's, what's going on? <laughs> It's impossible to know exactly what's going on. The, the type of experiment you need to do to figure that out with certainty is not possible to do. But um, I think all of the things you just mentioned are really important. Um, you know, you know, big picture cultural issues, family culture, um, you know, uh, how we raise people, stress levels, um, and uh, school environments. But I think one of the most important things that we have the most control over is what we put into our bodies every day. And the quality of our diet has has declined remarkably uh, in the past, even the past 20 years. And you see the steep rise in mental health problems in the population parallels the steep rise in all kinds of health problems, you know, metabolic disorders like diabetes and obesity and heart disease. They, they run in tandem. So as our metabolism is and, and our, our gut health and our metabolism is destroyed by whatever toxins or the, the wrong foods, the, the wrong toxins, environmental pollutants, plastics, uh, antibiotics, drugs, who knows? We've, we're becoming more fragile. So as a psychiatrist, you have the power to prescribe medication. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you also prescribe some, yeah. some Nutrition advice. There's some nutrition advice in there too, and we had a great podcast with Dr. Drew Ramsey. We mm-hmm. talked about, and in the context of trying to destigmatize uh, prescription drugs with regards to mental health, he had, a, he had a great quote, which I'll never forget: "Is lithium and magnesium are right next to each other on the periodic table." I was like, "Wow, that's powerful." You can inter- you can interpret that various different ways. So my, my question to you, as a psychiatrist. How do you straddle that? When when do you prescribe food? When do you prescribe medication? And when do you do both? And what do you see with regards to patients' success? And and what things seem to work? And and what things don't work? So it's a complicated question because every person is different and every interaction is different. And really, as a physician, uh, I think uh, the way I was trained in the, my philosophy is you have to meet people where they are where they are. And you do have to pay attention to what they want to do, obviously. They're coming to you for help. Uh, you can give them options, and ultimately it's up to them to decide which route to take. And as you get to know somebody, you can you know, perhaps you know, um, work towards different ways of looking at things. But uh, you know, the way I have my practice structured right now, uh, the people who are seeking me out are people who are already interested in nutritional Consultation, so um, that's a that's a really helpful for me to be able to start there and not have to necessarily start with medications. But but many of the people who consult with me 
are already taking psychiatric medications, and they're they're trying to find out whether or not they can do with less of them or even come off of them. Do you ever think about, wow, if I, 20 years, you know, I'm sure you think about your practice, or I don't know, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a doctor, but the way my mind works, I would think about, wow, like if I knew this now, 10, 20 years ago, there were so many people who I think could have benefited from this approach. Do you ever tend to think of, okay, I think that, you know, 20% of the people I saw back then probably didn't need, you know, could have been so much better. Or just how, how do you think about, I tend to think in percentages, like <laughs> how many people do you think with approach that's nutrition centered really could have benefited if you were able to go back in time? No, it's a hard question. It, it's, a, you know, again, impossible question to answer with any certainty, but m- this is my guess based on everything I've read about how the brain and body should work if you feed them properly is 80 to 90 percent of people might not be in trouble today if if we had been following common sense nutritional advice from the start from the beginning of life um and if you like percentages <laughs> one in six americans takes a psychiatric medication wow. is it really possible that one in six of us has a psychiatric medication deficiency disorder <laughs> do we really need all that medication how many of those people might not need medication that's i think about that every day right so again understanding we're operating the assumption that we are all unique individuals but do you have a general optimal diet for optimal mental health i do uh so i think an excellent starting place for everyone is what i call a pre-agricultural whole foods diet and some people think of this as a paleo style diet and what it is is it removes all the processed foods all the modern junk foods and it also removes the agricultural staples, the grains and legumes and dairy products. I think that's a great place to start for everyone. Now, not everybody wants to start there, and that's okay. That you know, you can, uh, if you just get the processed foods out, you're you're eighty percent of the way to where you're trying to go. Um, so the reason why I like to start there is because it removes all of the refined carbohydrates and vegetable oils, which promote inflammation, oxidation, insulin resistance. These are root causes of brain disorders, including psychiatric disorders. These are the, these are the foods, quote unquote, that are damaging the brain from the inside out. And these ingredients, these are the signature ingredients of, modern, of the modern diet. They're in almost every packaged and prepared food in the grocery store they're very, very difficult to avoid. Most people are eating these things four, five, six times a day. And it's literally eating away at your brain. So causing the metabolism of the brain to go awry and destroying the structure of the brain. So what are your optimal brain, your best brain foods? So this is, I know, a controversial question. I know a lot of people think of plant foods, certain plant foods as superfoods, and they think of I think about what can I add to my diet? What, what's, the, what's the most magical food that I can add to my diet to, to improve my mental health? Um, and I think other than meat, seafood, or poultry, you know, an, animal, an animal food, which is a, a wholesome, ancient, nutrient-dense um, uh, food, which contains all the vitamins and minerals and fatty acids and so forth that you need, that your brain and body needs, other than that, I mean, that's the closest thing to a superfood that I can think of because it's nutritionally complete and comes with no anti-nutrients that many of the plants food, plant foods contain. So 
if you're including some animal foods in your diet, the plant foods that you choose are less important. Um, we could talk for probably a very long time about the risks and benefits of various plant foods, but meat, when, by, when I say meat, I mean meat, seafood, or poultry. It doesn't have to be red meat. That's the, the only superfood. Um, if you're thinking about a nutritious food that has the least amount of risk uh, uh, to its consumption for your health. I'm curious with regards to specific foods. Like, so for me, for example, I'm 45. Heart disease runs in my family. I get my blood work every quarter. I, I don't eat a lot of red meat anymore. I just, what I do, not good for the blood work. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, like, wild salmon, for example. Mm -hmm. Oysters. I'm just curious, like, an omega 3 specifically, mm -hmm. people look like omega 3 to omega 6 ratio. Like, if you're thinking of, like, nutrients in terms like how would you rank i know oysters is, is a popular one oysters are power nutritional powerhouse yes. they really are and for some people who don't feel comfortable eating most other types of animal foods they can be uh for a lot of reasons because they're more sustainable and so forth and um they're not mammals and it's just you know psychologically and perhaps ethically environmentally a better choice than a lot of the other animal foods it does not have to be red meat it really does not. And what about, I'm always curious about my nuts, my favorite snack. What, what are your favorite nuts for brain health? So, uh, well, why, why are nuts healthy? What, where does that information come from? Well, mind, body, green, the internet. I think we're generally, I think certain nuts. So like your walnuts, your pistachios, your almonds. Yes, no, and, and I, healthy I'm, not, fats. I'm not meaning to be facetious, but yeah. I'm asking, so why? why? Why are they healthy? Healthy right. fats. Mm -hmm. Which fats? Saturated fats, not polyunsaturated. Yes. So the only reason I'm asking that is not is not to be obnoxious. It's to it's it's to it's because there's a lot of information out there about certain foods, which um, when which is very difficult to understand. You know what it's based on. So nuts are a whole food. Nuts contain protein. Nuts contain carbohydrate. Nuts contain fat. The types of fats they contain are natural fats, mm -hmm. and the types of omega three fatty acids they have in them um, are uh, uh, they do have depending on the nut can have some omega three fatty acids sure. in them, and they also contain omega six fatty acids. Much There's, better answer than mine. Uh, no, I, and I, I, I really apologize. <laughs> I was not I'm not at all trying to put you on the spot. No, no, no. But the reason why I was asking was because I wanted to know what it was that you wanted me to respond to about nuts because there's so many different theories out there. Was it the fiber? Is it the types of fats? You know, that sort of thing. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with nuts if you tolerate them. Sure. But the types of omega-3 uh, fatty acids that are in nuts are not necessarily the, the ones your body is looking for because they need to be converted into the DHA and EPA, the omega-3s that the body and brain actually use. So there's an extra step that's involved, which is very inefficient and unreliable, especially if you're pregnant or if you're an, a growing infant. So they're an, they're an excellent whole food for people who tolerate them, but the fats that are in them are inferior to the fats that you find in animal foods. So wild salmon's your better source for omega three, without question. Is I guess what you're saying? Yeah, yeah sure. Or your fish oil, or yeah. yeah, sure. So let me let me re, let me on the subject. Why I was going to nuts was around healthy fats. So how how would you? What are your healthy your your favorite healthy fats? So the way I the way I think about that is that any fat that exists in nature is perfectly fine and healthy to eat, as long as it's not 
uh, processed, refined, sure. uh, or manufactured. If you find it in a whole food, whether it's a plant or animal food, there's no reason why you can't have it. And you know, we tend to eat a mixture of fats. The uh, PUFAs, the polyunsaturated fats, <laughs> the saturated fats, um, and, and the MUFAs, the monounsaturated fats. These three fats, all of them exist in all whole foods that contain fat. You will find a mixture of all three of those in all whole foods. We're designed to handle those fats. Right. There's no reason why you can't have a natural fat of any kind. I like that. And so thinking about everyday issues that people may be ha having with their brain health or mental health or just the brain, the head, we'll just stick with the head. So I think of migraines, I think of mood. What are some natural solutions there in your opinion for people? So I think, so the sort of three pillars of nutritional psychiatry as I see them to try to take a lot of the kind of confusion out of it for people is that you have uh, you need to get the right nutrients to the brain, so you need to make sure that the brain has all the building blocks and chemicals that it needs to run properly. So you need to make sure your diet contains the foods that delivers those nutrients to the brain without a lot of difficulty. So it has to contain the nutrients, and those nutrients have to be available for us to, we have to be able to absorb them and use them. So that's the nutrient piece, and that's why I test for nutrient excuse me, deficiencies. The second pillar is um, Take the things out of your diet that are damaging your brain, and those are the processed foods, the refined carbohydrates and the seed oil. So things like, um, you know, fruit juice and um, uh, sugar and flour and refined cereal products um, and vegetable oils. Those things are working against your brain. The first thing you want to do is take those out. So you, you take out the bad things. You make sure you've got good things in there, and then the third piece, and, and any whole foods diet, pretty much will get you. We'll take care of those two pieces. We can talk about plant-based diets if you wish. But those, if you're eating whole foods and you're not eating junk food, that takes care of most of what we are just talking about. And the right. third pillar is metabolism. If you have damaged carbohydrate metabolism, you have insulin resistance or prediabetes, then your brain is not able to access uh, the energy that it needs to run itself properly. So, and, and prediabetes and insulin resistance is an epidemic. More than 50% mm -hmm. of Americans now have insulin resistance, and it's invisible. You can't tell by looking at somebody if they have it, because thin people can also be insulin resistant. You don't have to be overweight. You can't tell unless you specifically look for it. And most doctors, not just psychiatrists, but most doctors of any type or nurse practitioners do not test for insulin resistance. And if you have insulin resistance, then no matter what kind of diet you're eating, it's really important actually in most cases to eat a low carbohydrate version of that diet. That's not necessary for everyone, just for people who have insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is bad for lots of things. Yes. <laughs> it is, including heart disease, it's just bad. It, it's, it's, bad. It's, it's, it's public health enemy number one. Yeah, it's like inflammation. Inflammation is, I always I joke like inflammation is sort of this nebulous term, but it's just bad, it's bad. We all know we don't want it. Inflammation's bad. Exactly. And so what about, so I, I talked about, we said migraines, mood, I throw anxiety in there as well. I feel like this is generation anxiety. So many people are anxious. Yeah. Um, in your opinion, like does this, does anxiety still fall under all the other advice or is there something different? I'm curious in your opinion that's happening there and other advice for people who are, who are a little anxious. Yeah, and it's a great question. And so uh, what a lot of people might find really interesting is that 
if you're eating the wrong foods too often, especially the, the processed carbohydrates, uh, they're very metabolically active. So they, uh, when you eat something that spikes your blood sugar, like a big glass of orange juice in the morning, for example, or a bagel, get a big spike in your blood sugar. Then you get a spike in your insulin to squirrel away all that sugar into your cells. The problem with that is the in, so the, the glucose goes up and down, the insulin goes up and down, but then all of the most of the other hormones in your body follow suit because insulin is a master growth hormone and it's controlling the levels and activity of most other hormones in the body, including your sex hormones and your stress hormones. So if you're eating that way three, four, five, six times a day, which I know you're not, but so many people still are, especially children. You mentioned you had little kids, sure. and I'm sure you feed your little kids really well. But how many people think of kids' food as sugary food? You know, sugars and starches and crackers and cookies and gummy vitamins and juice and sure. juice boxes and sweetened yogurts. They're getting this, they're on this hormonal roller coaster all day long. Their adrenaline levels are spiking and crashing four to five hours after every sugar spike. And so it's really important to understand that we have a lot more control over our anxiety and our, our, our stress hormones than we realize. I mean, that those, those spikes can cause panic attacks. You know, it can cause people to feel sweaty and shaky and hungry and hangry and irritable. <laughs> and and uh, so, and that can happen into the night, depending on how many times a day you're eating these things. So, and a lot of people don't realize the connection. Right. So what about, it's fall here, days are getting a little shorter. You tend to think of the seasonal mood disorder and mood in general, and I think of vitamin D. Mm-hmm. What, what's happening there? So vitamin D is a complicated topic. Many, many people are deficient in vitamin D, especially those of us who live up here in the beautiful Northeast um, and further north. So uh, vitamin D deficiency is common, so it's really important to get sunlight, which we've been told isn't good for us. (laughs) It's really important to get sunlight, uh, but in the wintertime we can't get it. But the body does store vitamin D, so if you get enough sunlight during the summer, you can store some up, and and uh, you can also take a vitamin D supplement, or you can uh, you can also look at the quality of your diet. And again, vitamin the type of vitamin D the body is looking for is called vitamin D three, mm-hmm. and that's only available in the fatty animal foods. And you can get that in a supplement too. And, you can get it yeah. in a supplement too. Mm-hmm. So another thing that's topical right now, we were saying how earlier. Dementia and Alzheimer's are, are very much in the news, which is a good, which I think is a good thing because I think what we're, we're, it's a very exciting time that there is hope and prevention in terms of what we can do. So, in your opinion, what can we do if I'm in my 20s, 30s, or 40s? If something maybe runs in my family and I can take some preventative steps? I'm so glad you asked this question because that's exactly when the steps need to be taken. And a lot of people don't realize that the path to Alzheimer's begins decades before the symptoms become obvious. So, and the the path to Alzheimer's is paved with insulin resistance. It's not the only determination, it's not the only determining factor about whether or not a person develops Alzheimer's. Of course, it's more complicated than that, but it is the most powerful risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And not just to, like, associated vaguely with, or maybe it's a coincidence, the science is very clear. Multiple lines of high-quality evidence from all different kinds of studies show that uh, insulin resistance uh, directly affects memory and the, the ability of the hippocampus, which is the memory center of the brain, to access energy and to be able to thrive. And it will shrink if you have insulin resistance. Your hippocampus is getting smaller because it's dying um, from lack of energy. 
So you mentioned, I have this picture in my head of like a little child, like going up and down, <laughs> having the having the sugary breakfast, which makes me think about breakfast and intermittent fasting and and keto. What's your what's your take on intermittent? I know they're they, they tend to go hand in hand, but I realize they're different things. But what's your take on intermittent fasting and keto in terms of brain health and mental health? Yeah, so we'll start with intermittent fasting because it's. A, uh, I have a lot of complicated thoughts about intermittent fasting, but the bottom line is. If you're if you're eating less often, um, you know one meal a day, say, there's nothing wrong with that, and it can be very very healthy for you to to eat less often because then you your body is spending less time in uh, sort of the food processing mode, and it's giving your body time to rest, rejuvenate, relax, recover, recycle, heal. Um, it's really important not to be eating constantly. So eating less often is a really, really good thing, no matter what kind of a diet you eat. So I'm a big fan of that. And it can help people, too, to practice eating less often and realize that it's going to be okay. You know, if you don't eat every two hours, sure. it's going to be okay. Um, so uh, prolonged fasting, I have more complicated thoughts on, but we'll leave, we'll leave that aside for now. A ketogenic diet is a really uh, is a, is an, um, a therapeutic tool that I use in my practice every day. And it's really powerful because it, uh, just like intermittent fasting does, it can lower your insulin levels, lower and stabilize uh, your insulin levels and your blood glucose levels. And it allows, it turns on fat burning in the body and allows your brain to burn more fat than glucose for energy, ketones. The body breaks down the fat, turns into ketones, ketones go to the brain. So the brain can run, run on a mixture of glucose and ketones. And when it does that, it runs more efficiently and uh, with a lot less uh, a lot less collateral damage. So it's a cleaner, more efficient fuel for the brain. And uh, it allows, uh, it, it, it be, for many, many reasons, inflammation levels come down, oxidation levels come down, all these root cause mechanisms start to clear up. Um, this uh, growth factor in the brain called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, the levels of that which help which help help the brain grow new grow new connections and remodel itself, the level of that important growth factor goes up on a ketogenic diet without any supplementation. You know, some people take supplements sure. to help. So it just corrects the metabolism of the body. So this is going to be a really powerful intervention. So I'm a bit, I, not a ketogenic diet isn't for everyone, but a ketogenic diet is a really important tool for people who uh, are trying to improve their brain's access to energy and the overall health of, of their brain's metabolism. Can we go back? You said you, things are complicated with prolonged fasting. Let's go back to that. And what and how do you define prolonged fasting? Because I agree. <laughs> okay, um, uh, sure. Because you know, as a psychiatrist, I, I work with a lot of people with eating disorders. Yes. It's and different. Something it, men and women are different. They're just we're wired differently, and it's just when we're talking. Well, I'll let you finish. Sorry. No, no. I'm, but, I'm but curious. I'm curious to hear what you what you had to say. Well, I, I think. Well, a. I believe that men and you know, as I say, like being in a household of women, I was raised by women. men and women are fundamentally different. Yes. With regards to how we're, how we're made and our genetic makeup and food and and specifically something we've talked about here before is is intermittent fasting mm -hmm. different <sighs> and i think with fasting there are there are various types of fasts you know is it a 14 hour or 16 hour and then things extend and for a lot of people it can be a trigger 
if you're if you've had an issue with it with emotional like it, it, it can be a little dangerous and so i just want to i always like to call that out but i'd love your take on it i love what you just said because uh it is different women are more vulnerable to that to many problems psychologically with intermittent fasting there can be issues um but but also um hormonally mm -hmm. if you fast for too long i mean women are designed whether we like it or not we're designed to reproduce well, all creatures are designed to reproduce. We're designed to grow a baby, to be able to support a baby for nine months. The body is constantly sampling the environment to figure out, is this a good time to get pregnant? And if you don't have enough nutrients in, coming in, it's going to shut down your reproductive system. And maybe that's what you want to happen. I don't know. I don't necessarily recommend it. But uh, it, it's, going, it's going to have a, a profound effect on your metabolism and your hormonal status if you fast for too long as a woman. And, but then from a psychological standpoint, intermittent, intermittent fasting can, for some people who are prone to it, especially people with perfectionistic tendencies, um, or even in some cases trauma histories and attention, like need for attention, it can trigger some competitive um, instincts and uh, some... And for and I've, I've worked with people for whom this is the case. They are intentionally ignoring hunger cues for days on end and feeling weak Oof. and looking terrible for the sake of, they, they have this image in their mind, this perfectionistic, idealistic image of all their cells rebuilding themselves from scratch. You know, this autophagy, which everyone is seeking. Sure. I think that's great, but you, you, it can be taken too far. You know, and so any any diet, any strategy can be taken too far, depending on who you are. But I think fasting, I think there just needs to be that caveat to it. There's fasting and there's fasting. Yeah, I think it's important because I think all, we live in a world where people are, people are busy, they're working hard, and they tend to say, just tell me what to do. 16 hours, is 18 hours, how much do I need to do for autophagy? <laughs> I'm just going to do that no matter what. And, and they just, and again, we're all unique individuals. You need to pay attention to your body. And I think... With fasting, it is tricky because on one hand, you know, you're supposed to listen to your body and pay attention. And so I have a cue, I'm hungry, but then, oh, wait, I'm supposed to ignore that. But then what else am I ignoring? It, it just, it's a slippery slope. It's a really slippery slope. And you just brought up another really interesting topic, which is this question, like, what is hunger, right? And there's two different types of hunger. And anybody who's tried um, a low-carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet or, or, even, or even just gotten the junk food out of their diet... There's a difference between being hungry because you need food and being hungry because you're craving something. Or being hungry as I drink water because I'm dehydrated. Exactly, right? <laughs> and so there's a difference between craving and being hungry. And the difference, if you, if you try a, for people who try a ketogenic diet or even just a plain old kind of garden variety, low carbohydrate diet, they often notice that they feel the need to eat a lot less often. And, the, and when they do get hungry, it's more comfortable tolerable kind of hunger it's yeah. not i'm going to you know eat the living room chair kind of hunger. yeah can you, i think that's so interesting <laughs> could you go a little deeper on being craving versus hungry sure you know that that roller coaster we talked about yeah. right that's what's driving it so when your insulin levels are crashing and your hormones are crashing and your and your uh, stress hormones are are rising the reason why that's happening is because, so when glucose was, you eat something sugary. Let's say you have some Fruit Loops this morning, right? I'm going to rename this. This is the insulin show. <laughs> I'm sorry. Insulin, no, this is so good. Important. It's it so is, important. It is, it is. And we tend to think in insulin, the roller coaster, I'm glad we're talking about this. I, I love that you're asking me about it because this is what I wish everybody understood about the brain. When the, depending on how you eat, you're putting your brain on either a nice even keel that's going to be able to cope 
beautifully with whatever. I mean, we're designed to handle stress. We shouldn't be snowflakes, right? So, <laughs> you know, but if, if your brain is, is constantly out of balance and everything's spiking and crashing all day long, of course you're going to feel unsettled. Of course little things are going to throw you off. Of course you're going to want, you know, you know, take a bite out of your neighbor if they look at you the wrong way because you're not balanced. You're not in balance. So to get back to what you're saying, so your question, when, when you eat something, let's say you have Fruit Loops for breakfast, your, glucose, your, your blood sugar, your glucose spikes, your insulin spikes to bring the glucose back down to normal, but insulin, left to its own devices, will pull that blood glucose down to zero. Because it's very simple, and the way it deals with blood sugar is kind of very simple, it just kind of pulls it down. The body's not stupid, it's not gonna let your blood sugar go down to zero because that would be, it would kill you in a matter of minutes. That's how you can kill somebody with an insulin, insulin injection. You can. So the death body, by Fruit Loops. Death by Fruit Loops, right? Injecting the Fruit Loops in. <laughs> so, um, so when when the when the blood sugar is being pulled down by by insulin very rapidly, that's a signal to the body. It's an emergency. It's like we can't let the blood sugar go down to zero. That's like the worst thing that could ever happen to us. What are we going to do? the body releases stress hormones that counteract that, and they, they keep the blood sugar from bottoming out. But those stress hormones, they're gonna tell you to eat more right away. Our blood sugar is crashing, you, we need to eat right now. This is an emergency, you know what I mean? So, and the, and the stress hormones, uh, depending on how sensitive you are, and this gets worse over, over time, gets worse as you get older, become more and more sensitive and, and uh, to, to, to these hormones. You can have panic attacks, you can feel, re- like we said, hungry, angry, irritable. Um, most people, many, many people, feel like they need to eat every two hours. How would we have survived as a species if we needed to eat every two hours? Right. Uh, we just wouldn't have had access to food in most cases every two hours. So it's not normal and you have to take yourself instead of eating every two hours why not take out the foods that are putting you on the roller coaster in the first place it's so makes so much more sense so around three o'clock in the afternoon when that roller coaster tends to hit for a lot of people i go for black coffee i love black coffee is that a bad thing Is, is coffee okay that's a really complicated question. And I, <laughs> I would become very unpopular if I dug, dug into that with you. But, and but, I, I, you know. Well, I'll also, I'll also add, I am the type of person who does not affect their sleep. My wife, Colleen, can, if she does coffee at 3 p.m., she will have a problem sleeping. She has to cut off coffee by noon. Me, I could have coffee after dinner for dessert. I'm good. Yeah, and you see, everybody is so different. Everybody is so different. But with regards to the, the, the roller, the context of the roller coaster. Yes, Great, I, that you pulled that together. So caffeine raises stress hormone levels, and and so in doing so, it can it can it's trying to keep the blood sugar a little bit higher because it thinks you're in a state of emergency and that you need that blood sugar to fight off the saber toothed tiger, say for example, you know. So it's artificially raising your stress hormone levels, and some people do okay with that better than others. Um, so the thing about when people ask me about coffee. I asked them first exactly what you offered, which was, does it bother you? Like, do you sleep okay? Do you have anxiety? Do you have panic attacks? Do you feel nervous all the time? You know, do you have headaches? How are you doing, right? And if it's not bothering you, maybe it's something you want to keep in your life. But the question that I prefer to ask about no matter what food, this is why I turned the nut question around, which I hope didn't sound um, sound <laughs> impolite, is just I was trying to understand, you know, why, do you, why is it that you need the coffee in the first place? What is it doing for you? And is the, are you using it to deal with a problem that we might be able to deal with differently? And I just like to ask 
a little deeper question. If you have advice on how we can get our five-month-old to sleep a little better, I can tell you exactly why we're having the coffee at 3 p.m. Our, our almost three-year-old is good on sleep, but the five-month-old, it's been a bit of a process. I apologize. That sounds So she's terrible. about, there's a 12-pound there's a problem. No, no. But I, generally, yeah. besides that, like I am short on sleep because of the 12-pounder who we love. But uh, if I were to list my favorite beverages, I would say great sparkling water, Topo Chico. I love Topo Chico. And then I would go with, I love great black coffee. I just love the taste. Yeah, you I know. always have. It, it, and maybe maybe there's something psychosomatic there with the way coffee makes me feel. And my, uh, I don't think I drank it as a child, but like I just love the taste. People, I would do a coffee tasting if there was. <laughs> People have to choose their battles, right? I can't answer the, I can't answer your question about whether the coffee that you're drinking is good or bad for you. And because I just don't know, right? And and uh, so, but I think what's really important is to think, okay, of all the things that you could do for yourself, coffee's way down on the list of things you're gonna be looking at, especially if you do not have anxiety or panic attack issues or insomnia, if you're trying yeah. to sleep and you can't sleep, we don't need to look at the coffee. We're gonna look at other things. We're gonna look at how much processed food is in your diet. Are you getting enough nutrients? Um, do you have insulin resistance? That's where that's sure. where the money is. The coffee's gonna be way down on the bottom of the list. It might not even come up in the conversation if it's not bothering you. Well, I do my comprehensive testing with Frank Lipman every quarter, so, so far I'm good on the coffee. Excellent. <laughs> um, so with regards, anxiety I have to like what's your take on the endocannabinoid system and hemp and CBD and, and the relationship between stress and the ECS which I am fascinated by I uh, I will be honest with you and I haven't studied that in uh, enough depth to give you a, 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 re, a you know a worthwhile answer but it's something I can get back to you about it I don't I haven't um, I mean a lot of people use CBD oil now and a lot of people use cannabis um, my question is why why is everybody feeling the need for pain and anxiety treatments? Why are people not feeling well emotionally and physically? What is going on? Exactly. What's going on? I'm asking you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I like to understand, okay, is there something we could do with diet that could help your inflammation levels go down, help your body heal itself, uh, promote healing rather than inflammation so that you'll have less pain? Um, help promote hormonal balance and neurotransmitter balance in the brain so that you'll feel calmer and you won't feel anxious and you'll be able to sleep. So I like to try to look at the root causes um, and I'm, you know, rather than judge like what people are using, whether it's caffeine or cannabis sure. or alcohol or whatever it is, I like to understand, you know, is there, like, why? So in terms of, we've got the nutrition part down, in terms of other lifestyle advice for people maybe struggling a bit, what, what, what advice is that? sleep stress in general yeah i mean aside so nutrition obviously is the big one and you know i think that uh one of the things that's really important for people to i think will give people hope is that a lot of people think well the brain is just the brain and it's set and you've got the brain you've got right <laughs> i don't agree with that the brain is a remarkably it's a remarkably responsive organ it's it's a living growing changing organ and you can influence it in a huge number of ways not just with what you eat which is the most important way if you ask me but in how you spend your time who you spend your time with what you spend your time thinking about what you expose yourself to in terms of images and sounds um, are you doing things are you in healthy relationships are you doing things you enjoy 
you know, are you suppressing a lot? I mean, emotions are important. Are you suppressing emotions in your relationships or in your work? You know, are you doing something that really gives you joy? All of these things, all of these things change the brain. Like if you're spending your time doing it, exercise is extremely important. I can't believe I forgot to mention. Exercise is really good for your metabolism. It's really good for your brain. It doesn't even take that much time. You know, even, even 15 minutes a day can be helpful. And so how you use your body and how you spend your time and the environment you put your brain into, excuse me, <laughs> um, you know, uh, is your brain spending time uh, in healthy environments or unhealthy environments. You sounded very blue zones there for a moment. <laughs> Who I love, I love Dan Buettner. I love well. It's, it, it, what what I like about that is it really is important emotional well being. Where you spend your time, do you have purpose? Purpose. These are big things. I could have the best diet in the world, but if I'm lacking purpose, if I'm lacking real connection, if I'm lacking a mean, you know, if, I, if I'm in a abusive relationship, it doesn't matter. I'm fasting keto up the wazoo. It's it's <laughs> that is absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. On the other hand, your life and I talk to people every day for many many years. I've heard this story. Everything in my life is fine. Why don't I feel good? You know. So that both can be true. So people are complicated, and there are a lot of different ways sure. to help people. And you know, some people who consult with me, they they start off asking their questions about nutrition, but we often will end up you know, talking about other things. And so it's not always about food. So I'm curious, how do you eat? Like what's, do you ever, I know you're not a fan of sugar. We're going to name, this is the insulin show. (laughs) What do you ever, what's, you know, when do you have dessert or are you not like, what's, when when do you enjoy an indulgence? So for a variety of reasons, uh, which, you know, wouldn't apply to the vast majority of your listeners, I rarely eat plant foods of any kind at this point. Okay. Um, I came to that uh, way of eating very gradually over many years, but it has largely to do with food sensitivities. I have a lot of food sensitivities, and I think there's a growing number of people out there who do. Mm-hmm. Something is damaging our gut and and our and our immune system, and is breaking down the barriers that allow us to tolerate a wide variety of foods. So I'm in that category, unfortunately. Sure. So I don't do well with a lot of plants. So I, I, I just eat meat, seafood, and poultry, and I rarely stray from that. Um, so uh, that's what I eat. Uh, what was the second question? Well, you say like for most people. So for for example, so Dr. Perlmutter, who who I love, is on here. Is like yeah. he has a great line. He's like you're whether you're having a and for him, he's very focused on. You know, Alzheimer's dementia runs in his family. It's something yeah. to think about. He's got a really powerful personal story. Yes. And, and says so something along the lines of, you know, your brain doesn't know if it's your birthday or, or not. Like, it's still cake. They don't know. <laughs> and so he's just he just kind of draws, in a very lovely and delightful way, he just kind of draws a line in the sand and says, like, I don't do it, period, with regards to gluten. I'm just curious, for, for, for if you're not struggling with autoimmune or of, like, if you're relatively healthy, feeling good, what's your general advice for you know, h- h- how much is, is okay? And I know we're all individuals again. Yeah, sure. And so one of the things that in, in my consult services, this question comes up all, all the time. So let's say that someone is interested in embarking on a new diet, whatever kind of diet it is, whether it's a paleo diet or a supplemented plant-based diet or a keto diet, whatever it is they, they want to do. They say, well, does this mean I can never have X again? Right, right. You know, like ice cream. Right. Right. And the, the, I answer, and I, this might be an annoying psychiatrist uh, tendency, but I tend to answer the question with a question, <laughs> which is, can you have it once and not have it again? You know, can you, some of us can have 
uh, you know, can indulge in one day and get right back on track the next day. And I'm going to quote Dr. Eric Westman, who is um, uh, just a, a, a thought leader in the sort of low carb health world. And he says, you know, don't let a holiday become a hollow week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And because some people can't stop. And, and food addiction is very real. <laughs> so some people need that you need to know who you are. If you can do it every once in a while, great. So what's so interesting about so you brought up ice cream and can I have a bite or the whole pint? Literally, there, there's Arctic Zero is mastered. They you can eat the whole pint. Uh-huh. There are less calories, and it's something I've actually discussed with Colleen. We're like, wait, wait, is this like actually potentially worse? Would you rather have that, or is it better? Is is it better in terms of a health perspective? Is it better to have the whole pint that's less calories, or have the great full fat? ice cream, whether it's a whole milk or a plant-based ice cream, but you're only having two bites or three bites. I think it's, it's a, an interesting question to think really about. It's a really interesting question. Uh, yeah. Is it bad? Like we're talking about binging and... Yeah. So it depends on who you are. Yes. It depends on who you are. And so uh, for some people, it's going to be, it's not going to be psychologically satisfying to have three spoons of something. It's big spoons. To, we'll go big spoons. It's going to drive them crazy for a whole weekend. They're not going to be able to stop thinking. I didn't get to have the whole thing. I didn't get to have the whole thing. And they're going to go back and they're, it's going to preoccupy them until they have the whole thing. Because having the whole thing is what they remember enjoying, you know. Um, so it depends. And it depends on, I don't know what the ingredients are in Arctic Zero, but it depends on how it makes you feel. Like, are you going to lose a day the next day? Are you going to be able to get out of bed? Are you going to be able to, are you going to be, I mean, I work with people with serious mental illnesses, some of the people that I work with. You know, is it going to, you know, what's going to happen to them the next day it depends on what the ingredients are, who the person is, and how these things affect them because we all respond to these things so differently. Do you, do you think, you know, when you say, how does it make you feel? As, as I think, I think we're at this interesting juncture in the world of wellness where there's so much exciting science, there's so many trends. And on one hand, you have, and I, and I get it, again, people who are busy and just tell me what to do and it's, I do it. But at the same time, going back to this question of how does it make you feel in intuitive eating? And so much of it is how do you feel? If you do something you don't feel good, probably not good. And how do you bridge bridge the two? A hundred percent. And one of the problems, we were talking before about hunger cues and how do you know which ones to trust and which ones not to trust. It really depends on what you're eating because if you're eating junk food, you cannot trust your hunger cues because they're not real. They're artificially created by this roller coaster so you can't trust you know intuitive eating is you know just you know listen to your body right but your body has been hijacked Mm. if you're eating the wrong way your body's been hijacked and you can't trust i mean a lot of women think you know that they're just i say women because this is so much more common in women than men. I work with a lot of men, but that's mostly um, our audience is eighty percent female. So is it really? Often, yeah. But but you know you know I, I work with a lot of men too, but I don't hear this as often from them, from many of them. But uh, you know the thing is is that they think that they're, they're stuck in this place where well if I listen I'm supposed to listen to my body and be gentle to my body and not judge myself right and I think that's that's nice, and but then they're going to eat themselves into a really terrible health state and many. People are doing that. They think, how do we get out? They're stuck um, in this vicious cycle, and they they don't they don't know how to get out of it. And really, it's about eating in a way that allows your body's harmonies to you know your body to come back into harmony. 
And if you can find find that find that new balance, you can actually then start to trust your body again. Wow. And so where do you think the field of nutritional psychiatry is going? What's exciting to you with regards to new science? Like, what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now, three years from now? Oh, uh, you know, we're really at a tipping point, I think. You know, I'm just one of a handful of nutritional psychiatrists. There's just a few of us right now, but that's going to change very quickly. Um, the information is exploding. There's so much more new research that's, you know, about to be done. And the word is getting out thanks to people like you who have an interest in this and you know have you know started an entire business around helping people get well by learning how to learning how to like empowering them to take their health back um, without medications and surgeries in most cases right I'm not saying that medications aren't important they can be very important for some people I really want to say that um, because save lives. it's really important that that that's, um, not everybody can can go off medication but uh, you know, there's so much more people can do and they don't realize. So nutritional psychiatry, I think, is this this idea that we can reduce or eliminate the need for medications by paying attention to these three, these three underlying, these root causes, nutrient deficiencies, metabolic mayhem, I call it metabolic mayhem, uh, and uh, processed foods uh, toxicity. If you can address these three pillars, you might not need medication. And you, I can't imagine that you wouldn't feel better if you made if you took those steps. So I think more and more psychiatrists will be becoming educated about these things and starting to offer these options in their practices. And I would really like to see more psychiatrists learning about brain metabolism and how to do a very basic metabolic screen in there uh, for all of their all their patients. And specifically to Alzheimer's, do you think we're going to be a place where we have a potential cure in the next couple of years? Um, so there's cure and there's prevention. Right. So once you have Alzheimer's, there's a lot you can do to manage it now. A ketogenic diet is the the approach with the most science behind it. I actually work with patients who have early Alzheimer's who are on a ketogenic diet, and that we've uh, you know, actually see improvements in their mental clarity when they eat a ketogenic diet. So there and and uh, there's an excellent book about this by Amy Berger, by the way, called The Alzheimer's Antidote. But in any case, um, with Alzheimer's, you don't want to wait until you get Alzheimer's. You want to start now, however old you are now, whether you're 3, 30, or 80, you want to start right now to eat in a way that lowers your insulin levels because the root cause, the, the driving force behind most cases of Alzheimer's disease, it's not the only force, but it's the major force, is that if you have insulin resistance, insulin is having a harder and harder time getting into the brain. And if you don't have enough insulin in the brain, your brain cells cannot use sugar for energy. So they die. We're going to close on that. That is powerful. <laughs> on that cheerful uh, note. <laughs> no, and that cheerful. This is the insulin show. It's the insulin if show. You don't get the message if you don't get the memo on insulin after that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to work. Yeah, your brain cells can be swimming in a sea of glucose and still be starving to death. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Just thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Georgia. Thank you. <laughs>